To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. You just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. That infamous Access Hollywood videotape of Donald Trump will be part of the evidence that New York author E. Jean Carroll presents in her civil defamation and battery case against Trump over claims that he raped her in a dressing room of Bergdorf Goodman back in the 90s. Trump denies the allegations and called it a made-up scam on his Truth Social platform. But he has not been in the courtroom where a jury of six men and three women will decide whether he's liable for sexually assaulting Carol decades ago and defaming her last year by claiming on social media that she fabricated the attack to sell a book. Joining me is Judy Saunders, litigation partner of Ask LLP, where she leads the sexual abuse practice. This trial is about an event that allegedly happened 30 years ago. Tell us about the New York Adult Survivors Act, which allows Carol to bring this case despite the statute of limitations. So the New York's Adult Survivors Act addresses just that issue, that being if there was a sexual assault, sexual violence that occurred against an individual who was 18 years or older, what it does is that it finally brings the law to be more consistent with what studies and what science has shown, and that is that typically individuals do not fully disclose. They may even have partial disclosure, but they don't do that until much later in life, average age 52, 53. So this Adult Survivors Act allows now for this one year what we call revival window for claims to be brought. The window closes in November of this year. So this would fall within that act and would be appropriate for her attorneys to file. Carol's testimony is going to be bolstered by the testimony of two women who publicly claimed that Trump sexually assaulted them before the 2016 election, as well as that infamous Hollywood access tape where Trump brags about how easy it is for famous men to grope women. Explain why the judge is allowing that evidence in, which is not specifically about this case. What I believe that the judge is basing his ruling on is what we call modus operandi. Typically, Trump's attorney would argue that that type of evidence would be prejudicial. However, there's exceptions to that rule. And what the judge is allowing is showing that this is a practice, this is a pattern by this individual to engage in this type of behavior. So it's not to prejudice the accused, but more so to show that this is part and practice, that this is the mode in which this individual carries out these violent crimes. Usually in civil cases, the plaintiff calls the defendant as a witness. Why isn't the plaintiff calling Trump here? Well, it's my understanding that Mrs. Carroll's attorneys, they have a very damaging and very compelling recorded deposition, videotape deposition of Mr. Trump. 
They were very wise during the discovery process to make it a videotape deposition. Not every deposition is videotaped, but that deposition will be presented and show the jury exactly what they need to corroborate and also as evidence standing alone on itself to show the culpability and to show that Trump should be liable for the rape of Miss Carroll. And that's why it's not essential that they call him. Trump decided not to show up in person for the openings, and he may not even attend the trial. Is that a mistake on his part, the jury seeing that he's not even there? Well, you know, I think that speaks to two things. I think that that speaks to the way that he views these accusations. And it also, I know that there were certain arguments or applications made to the court by Mr. Tacopino, Trump's attorney, to state that it would be a logistical inconvenience for for Mr. Trump to show up. And that was the reason why. Do I think that that's a disadvantage? Absolutely. If, you know, you have someone, you're being accused of raping another individual, of ruining their life, you would expect that one would show up to show the jury how serious you take these charges and that you are there to defend against these accusations. So I think that the absence of Mr. Trump during this trial speaks volumes to how he feels about the case, how he feels about, you know, women in general. But this type of attitude I have seen through my work is nothing new. You have individuals who act out, who believe that the accusations of a woman, a man, an individual who's alleging sexual violence against them, it's not taken seriously, unfortunately. That's still the attitude. So, you know, it speaks volumes to me, and it's not something that I would ever recommend a client do. Trump's lawyer, Joe Tacopina, during his opening, besides casting doubt on nearly every detail of Carol's story, he followed with an aggressive attack on her, accusing her of exploiting her story for personal gain. Quote, she became a celebrity and loved every minute of it. Is it dangerous in a case like this to attack the victim? This defense that Mr. Trump's attorney, Joe Tacopina, is engaging in is unfortunately common. And I think that the trend is showing that it is unsuccessful. It is the oldest tool in a litigator's book during the course of sexual abuse litigation to try to cast the victim, to try to cast the survivor, Miss Carroll, in unfavorable light. We know that Miss Carroll had risen to prominence, was an accomplished career woman, professional prior to meeting Mr. Trump. So I think that he'll fail on that. And moreover, Mr. Tacopina is engaging in a code that we know has been practiced by individuals that have been accused and by culture in general. And here's the code. One, blame the victim. The second part of that code is to not believe the victim. That Ms. Carroll It's my understanding also her attorneys will present other individuals. We talked about this just a moment ago, other individuals that also accuse Mr. Trump of sexual abuse. So also part of this code, in addition to blaming the victim, is that you can't have just one survivor say they were raped. 
you have to have a cluster of individuals, more than one woman. It's not enough to just move forward on the testimony of just one individual. The code also includes retaliating against victims. So blaming the victim is a form, it's a degree of retaliation. So what he's doing, I think, is very dangerous. I think that this accomplished, very successful professional woman, I don't think that it will sit well with the jury. And I think that individuals that believe that the way to defend a claim, to abuse a victim again and re-traumatize them through this sense of she's doing it for fame, there are plenty other ways for individuals to acquire fame or notoriety. And I'm sure that Ms. Carroll would have been smart enough, more skilled enough than to accuse Mr. Trump of this heinous crime. And, you know, it, it should be noted that she had filed a separate lawsuit based on defamation. And to me, that's a very powerful piece of evidence. Trump's lawyers were planning to show the jury excerpts of E. Jean Carroll's deposition to show evidence of her past sex life, and the judge barred that. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I'm a little shocked when you've been accused of uh, something like this and you're desperate and you're looking for any type of defense. To me, they are looking and searching in the bottom of the barrel for a defense. So to try to bring in a survivor's past sex life, absolutely the most archaic tactic they could have used. And it's, it's actually quite embarrassing that a survivor would have to even, you know, speak to her sex life, whatever it is, or lack thereof. So to me, that is a very weak attempt. And again, scraping at the bottom of the barrel, looking for anything, and just trying to distract the juror as to the issues. How important is E. Jean Carroll's testimony when she does have, as we talked about before, she does have corroboration. So how important is her testimony itself? Absolutely. Very important. It's something that the jury, what we call on our jurors to do is to evaluate the credibility, to look at the witness as they're testifying. And also, because this case was brought by her, they have to, they meaning her team, um, the plaintiff has to go forward with presenting evidence to the jury through her testimony. So it's crucial. It's crucial procedurally, and it's also crucial for the jury to assess what she's talking about and also to assess the different elements of the claims that she's making, the allegations she's making. So it's very important. And, you know, the jury needs to hear what happened. I'm trying to figure out what defense the Trump team is going to put up besides attacking Carol's story? I mean, especially if Trump isn't going to take the stand. I agree with you on that point. What is the defense? And in my opinion, there is no defense. You know, from what we know and what has been reported, it's two things. And it goes back to that code that I was referring to that many times is being followed by individuals accused of sexual abuse, sexual crimes, and what we see in culture. Blame, one defense, blame the victim. So first, you engage in in, in these types of uh, defenses. First, if you can't call it a lie, which I think that was one thing early on that 
Mr. Trump and his team, they just tried to point the finger and say, that's a lie, it didn't happen. Well, in response to that, what do we see? We see Ms. Carroll's team bring in witnesses, her what we call outcry witnesses or disclosure witnesses, very compelling piece of evidence that she did disclose to individuals what happened. And then if that doesn't work, and then you say, well, they're, they're making these accusations for some type of, you know, alternative motives or reasons other than the truth. And in this case, what do you have? You have Mr. Trump saying that it's because she's seeking notoriety. Well, that will be defeated because Ms. Carroll's team will show that she was already an accomplished career woman. And that, to me, in general, is a very weak defense. So, you know, the sum of this, of what I'm saying is that they are going to be hard-pressed in this case to mount a real, true, and viable defense. The evidence is compelling. The word of one woman, of one survivor, should be enough in general, and I believe it'll be enough in this trial. The jury is composed of six men and three women. Does the plaintiff in a case like this normally want more women on the jury who might understand the story better? You know, not necessarily. The six men, they can have sisters. Maybe they have partners that are women. So today's jurors are sophisticated enough to understand the issues and understand sexual violence. And sexual violence doesn't just happen to women. It happens, we know, to individuals of any sexual orientation or gender identity. So you don't necessarily need to have six women or a full women jury. Just similarly, you don't need to have, you know, a jury of all one race to understand the complexities of the issue. So that doesn't necessarily, you know, cause concern. I have worked with and I have clients that I've represented that have been survivors of sexual abuse that are men themselves. So, you know, individuals today are sophisticated enough to understand violence and sexual violence. Thanks, Judy. That's Judy Saunders, litigation partner of Ask LLP. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everything. Everybody, including sitting presidents. So join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before, tell it like it is, and even sing a song or two. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Grammy-winning rapper Pras Michelle, who reinvented himself as a political influencer, is at the center of a case about an international multimillion-dollar conspiracy across two presidencies. 
Prosecutors contend that Michelle funneled money from a Malaysian billionaire through straw donors to Barack Obama's 2012 re-election campaign and tried to squelch a Justice Department investigation and influence an extradition case on behalf of China under the Trump administration. That billionaire Jolo is now a fugitive, and Michelle, who made at least $88 million in the deals, is on trial in federal court in Washington, D.C. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter David Voriakis. Michelle was paid $20 million to get Jolo a photo with President Barack Obama in 2012. Tell us about that. Well, this trial is about Pros Michelle, who was a Grammy-winning rapper from the 1990s hip-hop group, the Fugees. He made a lot of money that way. And then about a decade or so ago, he became friends with Jolo, who's a Malaysian tycoon who is suspected of stealing literally billions of dollars from the Malaysian development fund 1MDB. And that scandal has been investigated by the United States and several other nations. Uh, Joe Lowe, in 2012, wanted to get close to President Obama during his re-election campaign. And he really wanted a photograph with President Obama. And Joe Lowe had become friends with Pras Michel and had partied with Pras and Pras traveled around the world for a period with Jolo, as Jolo did with other celebrities like Leonardo DiCaprio. So in 2012, Jolo paid almost $21 million to Pras Michel to help facilitate him getting a photograph with President Obama. And this is one of three conspiracies that Pras Michel is charged with at his federal trial in Washington. For $20 million, couldn't Jolo have donated that and gotten a photo that way? Well, it's not easy to get close to the president, and typically political donors who give a lot of money can get close to the president and get a photograph or you know, get some FaceTime with the president. But in this case, Jolo, as a Malaysian national, was not able to give political donations to the Obama campaign. And he also had been vetted by the Obama campaign, and they were uncomfortable with his playboy image, and so they did not want him in campaign events. Pras Michel had promised that he would do his best. He initially took a million dollars to try to think about how to get a photograph for uh, Jolo, and then he tried to arrange so that Jolo could get into two different campaign events in 2012. And in both cases, the campaign would not allow Jolo in. Ultimately, Jolo got his photograph with Barack and Michelle Obama at the holiday party in 2012. And there's a picture of the three of them standing by a White House Christmas tree. Besides using straw donors to funnel illegal donations from Lowe into Obama's campaign, what else is he accused of here? He's also accused of trying to get the Justice Department to drop a pending civil forfeiture case against Jolo. What happened in 2016 is the Justice Department sued Jolo as the U.S. investigations picked up and you know other investigations around the world into whether Jolo stole these billions of dollars and then laundered them. And so Jolo was very concerned, and he wanted to try to see if he could get those charges dropped. 
And so what he did was pay ultimately $100 million to a group that included Pras Michel. And there were several other people who pleaded guilty. There was a former Trump fundraiser, Elliot Broidy. There was a former Justice Department attorney, George Higginbotham, who moonlighted as Michelle's lawyer. And there was Nikki Lum Davis, who was a Hawaiian businessman. All three of them pleaded guilty, but Trump pardoned Broidy. And at the trial, jurors heard the testimony from Higginbotham and Broidy, who were government witnesses, testifying about how they tried to use Broidy's access to Donald Trump and key figures in the Trump administration to get the case against Jolo dropped. That was ultimately unsuccessful. And later on, Jolo was indicted twice by the Justice Department, once in Washington and once in uh, Brooklyn, New York. Did the prosecutors offer Michelle a deal? I believe that the prosecutors did try to negotiate a plea deal with Michelle, but ultimately was unsuccessful. He chose to go to trial. He testified in his own defense, and he denied that he was trying to funnel Joe Lowe's money into the Obama campaign. He denied that he knew that he was supposed to register as a foreign agent under the Foreign Agents Registration Act to reflect his work for Jolo in trying to convince the Trump administration to drop their investigation of Jolo. And then there's a third aspect to the trial, a third conspiracy, which is that several of the same players, Pros Michel, Elliot Broidy, and Nikki Lum Davis, and a couple of others, tried to get the U.S. government to extradite a Chinese billionaire, Guo Wenguai, who was in the United States living in New York City and was a friend of Steve Bannon. He was one and he acted as a dissident in the United States and repeatedly criticized the Chinese government and Chinese officials quite explicitly. The Chinese didn't like that and they had charged him with crimes in China They wanted the Trump administration to extradite him back so that uh, they could put him on trial in China. And so at the same time that Pros Michel was trying to get the U.S. to drop its investigation of Jolo, he was also trying to get the U.S. to extradite Guo Wenguai, this Chinese billionaire dissident, back to China. And there was a lot of intrigue involved in those efforts. At one point, he met a high-ranking security official from China, both in China and at the Four Seasons Hotel in Manhattan, to talk about, you know, the progress in trying to convince the Trump administration to extradite Guo and Guai. At another point, George Higginbotham, who was Pros Michel's personal attorney, even though he worked for the Justice Department, he went into the Chinese embassy on a Sunday morning in Washington to to talk about trying to extradite Guo Wenguai. That effort failed, as did the effort to drop the Jolo investigations by the United States. But Pras Michel got his money. He made 18 or $19 million from the 2012 effort to get Jolo close to President Obama, and he made more than $70 million in the later efforts in 2017 to extradite Guo Wenguai and get the Jolo case dropped. Did he have to give any of that money back? 
It's not part of this trial, but previously the Justice Department filed a civil forfeiture suit and seized a number of his accounts. That case is currently on hold pending the outcome of the criminal trial. So tell us, how was he on the stand? Was he a good witness on his own behalf? He came across at the end as a sympathetic figure. I think it was clear that people understood him better beforehand. The question is whether the jury will believe his explanations about how he handled the tens of millions of dollars he got from Jolo. The prosecutors say that Jolo essentially was laundering his money through Pras Michel, and Pras Michel's position is that once Jolo paid him the money, it was his money, and he was free to decide what to do with it, that it was no longer Jolo's money, and that he saw that money as an investment in entertainment ventures. So did the prosecutor make any inroads on cross-examination, or did he hold up? The prosecutors, I thought, scored a number of points on cross-examination, and, you know, there's a great deal of evidence against Pras Michel, and Pras held his ground on his central point that it was his money, not Jolo's money, once he received it, that he was not funneling Lowe's donations into the Obama campaign, and that he was trying to, you know, build entertainment business. But there was a great deal of testimony against him. There was a lot of documentary evidence, and there's his failure to register under the Foreign Agents Registration Act or, you know, as an agent of China. And so there's a considerable amount of evidence that the government has arrayed. You know, we'll just have to see how the jury assesses that. So this has been a long trial, and there have been some high-profile witnesses. Why did... Leo DiCaprio testify. Well, DiCaprio essentially gave a lot of background on the relationship between him and Jolo and Jolo's lifestyle about how he spent millions of dollars, you know, living the high life in clubs and uh, bars and on yachts. And DiCaprio gave a critical piece of evidence that helped the government's case, which is that he said he told DiCaprio in 2012 that he wanted to put 20 to 30 million dollars into the Democratic Party during the election cycle. And DiCaprio said, wow, that's a lot of money. And so that supports the government's contention that Jolo put 20 million dollars toward getting a photograph with President Obama. So what is the jury, the composition of the jury? Seven women and five men and they've been uh, listening closely for a month. This could take uh, some time before we get a verdict. Well, I know you are going to be waiting for the verdict, and you'll let us know as soon as it happens. Thanks so much, David. That's Bloomberg legal reporter David Voriakis. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Bloomberg. 
To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.